thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 366, interview with Brandon Gaucher about his book, Before Evil, Young Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao, and Kim. Professor Gaucher, the director of global education at the Derry School and an adjunct professor of history at Fordham University, comes on to discuss his book, Before Evil. It's an examination of the myriad influences that created six of the most evil men in modern history. So, how did these unremarkable children, some with loving parents, turn out to be authoritarian adults who changed the world and left millions suffering in their wake? His book reminds us that good and evil are not as simple as we would like to believe. Professor Gaucher, thank you very much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Ray. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad you decided to come on the show because the basic premise of your book should never be forgotten. If anything, uh, we need a reminder of it every few years. So again, I'm glad you've come out with this book at this time. So if you could, please give us the main idea driving your book. But I have to say that it reminded me of something. I know this is going to sound cheesy, but it reminded me of something I read a long time ago. It's not like people that we... Uh, society at large have labeled bad guys. It's not like they get up every morning, twirl their evil mustache in the mirror and go, what bad things can I do today? Everybody in history and everybody in your book, as far as they're concerned, they are the heroes in their own stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's really disturbing. Yeah. That's difficult for us to wrap our minds around because as individuals who try to be decent, Mm-hmm. And, and loving and kind, as, as we must day to day, to respect the dignity of all human beings, it's really difficult to make sense of those who behaved with such inhumanity. Uh, we're talking about some of the worst people who ever lived, who caused suffering, misery, and loss. The loss of loved ones, and, and in addition to the actual suffering of those who would perish under their rule and as a result of their decisions, mm-hmm. it, it's uh, almost impossible to make sense of. This book, Before Evil, is an effort to focus, though, on the humanity of inhumanity. It is to try to move beyond the the popular understanding, which makes sense to us, which is the notion that only monsters could do these things. But that's not the reality. Monstrous people do these things, but monsters don't actually exist. Uh, The ghouls, the notion that these individuals had horns, that's not the reality. They were homo sapiens. They were human beings. And the story of man's inhumanity to man is a human one. This book is an effort to engage the formative years of some of these horrible tyrants and to examine how did they begin the road to such radicalism and such fanatical worldviews where they don't think that they're wrong. Mm. They believe that they were right. That is really difficult to, to grapple with. Right. They, they were right. They had to do things to either save their country or their society. And they were willing to make sacrifices along the way, which um, is, is the part that the rest of us would, would have a problem with. Uh, absolutely. And so and you go into great lengths to show that each person in your story and this is what makes them so human. It's not like everything in their life was bad. They had at least one parent that loved them, that looked after them, held that sacrifice for them. And, and that normally came in the form of getting an education because education's the, the magic bullet. That's how you get out of poverty. Uh, but here, after being, so these young men, they, they get an education and they are exposed to the larger world, mostly through books. But it seems like there's almost an, an immediate... And, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there almost just seems to be an intense Messiah complex reaction to this. The world is a mess. I can help clean it up or I should help clean it up and I'm going to. However, just like you said a second ago, it's some of their methods that we have a problem with. But at the very base, they were in a lot of ways trying to make the world a better place. Which is almost at face value impossible to make sense of. Right, How Exactly. How is it that mass murder, how is it that genocide against uh, European Jews by Nazi Germany, by Hitler's regime, how is that by any, any way of thinking not evil, Mm -hmm. right? How is Stalin and the Soviet Union letting millions and millions of his own people in the Soviet socialist republics like Ukraine, for instance, starve to death? 
when they know they're starving, when the regime in Moscow knows people are starving mm -hmm. and actually has the food to feed them, but prefers to export it abroad to buy industrial equipment, how can individuals sit in offices and, and be okay with that? Which brings us, before we dive into this notion of the Messiah complex, right. to something that Ronald Reagan said in his 1983 Evil Empire speech, and he's quoting C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. which he, he said that the, the greatest evil occurs not just in concentration camps, there we see its end result. But the greatest evil occurs in well-lit offices that are warm by men who are well-dressed, who don't yell, they can speak quietly, who quietly sign orders on a desk that sends millions of people to their deaths. That is heinous. That is the story of Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Mussolini and Lenin and Kim Il-sung in the story before evil. But you asked about this notion of the Messiah complex, right? And yeah. I would say that before evil has two key arguments. The first is that uh, while trauma is a part of their lives, and we can touch on that later, mm -hmm. uh, it is access to a good education that makes the biggest difference in their stories. Right. Uh, and, and what comes from good education, it comes from Victor, from Mussolini reading Victor Hugo, uh, from Stalin reading Dostoevsky, uh, and then Chernyshevsky, uh, and, and then Marx and Engels, mm -hmm. Lenin reading major novels by Russian authors. And why does this matter? They begin to think about a world that's bigger than their surroundings and what role they will play in it. Right. And their educations are the road to these fanatical ideas which will cause such evil. Specific example, we ask how could Hitler possibly have believed he was right? Um, well, uh, one of the major tenets of Nazism is the notion of social Darwinism. Mm -hmm. Hitler talks about it frequently in his table talk uh, conversations at night during the war when his, his everything he's saying is being written down, which right. is, the strongest people are going to survive in any given situation, and this is the way of the world. This is the way of nature. And what's wrong with that? If we conquer a country and take it over and cause mass death and destruction, well, this might be disturbing, but there's a greater end here. And is it not right that the stronger of the species should survive? Right. This is evil. Yeah. Because it doesn't recognize the humanity of other people. Um, Hitler, by the way, will reference how America handled, how the United States government handled Native Americans. Mm -hmm. and this ethnic cleansing was an example to follow. Um, actions that don't take into consideration what it means for other people to be a human being, for them to suffer, for them to lose loved ones. But it comes from these big ideas that they think are right. Right. And, and, and to be, if I can just be brutally honest for a second, it's not like Hitler was wrong when he was talking about how, you know, the American government and American society treated the Native Americans, especially after the Civil War. And so it's 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 uh, awkward to say, yeah, Hitler was right about anything, but but you have to be honest about it. And as far as Stalin in Ukraine, um, you know, I've read enough to know that, yes, he needed the money. He, he, Stalin knew there was another war coming. And in order to survive a war, you have to have factories. You have to be able to mass produce tanks, planes, and guns. I need factories. I sell the food. I build factories. We survive. So Stalin's thinking about the bigger picture. But you're absolutely right. Millions of people are going to die. They're going to literally starve to death. But for Stalin, there was a bigger issue. Um, you would like to think that there might have been a third way, you know, a, a balance of what of both of those. But at the end of the day, Stalin made the choices and every all, all, all of these men made the choices that they did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Stalin is guilty. Yes, he is guilty because there, there, there were other ways to industrialize the Soviet Union. And, and he gives a talk in the early 1930s when he says war is coming. Right. And he references Russian history. We've been weak. We have to be strong. But as a great historian, Stephen Kotkin has written in his volumes on Stalin. He's written two of a three-part, really uh, intensive biography. Mm -hmm. And he goes into great depth on this. There were other ways to industrialize the Soviet Union other than letting millions of people starve to death. Right. And, and very quickly, you reference this notion of, you know, of, of Hitler uh, speaking about his admiration of how the U.S. government handled Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the reality was that ethnic cleansing was committed against Native Americans in this country, and it was a great evil. And so what do we take away from that kind of framing point? And this is a framing point for the whole conversation. Mm -hmm. We want to put horrible tyrants at arm's length because we want to think that we have nothing in common, no parallels to their humanity, to their lives. The story of these men is not only about the formative years of tyrants to be and the evil they do, mm -hmm. but it's a call for us to look inwards and recognize that we too are susceptible to doing horrible things, believing they're right because of bigger ideas, 
I don't mean to imply that there's an inner Hannibal Lecter in all of us <laughs> inner because it would be a criticism, right? They're right. not like this, right? right? You're trying to tell me I'm like Stalin, but I'm not like Stalin. Stalin yeah. had certain psychopathological traits, right? And on and on. And, and there's a nuance that that's a nuanced qualification that needs to be made, right? There are obvious sure. differences. But we, me, you, listeners, human beings are susceptible to radicalism or ideological views which begin to suggest that the humanity, the, the, the notion of the human condition for others, that that's not important. Right. This is going to be horrible and we're going to do this and it's for this larger end. Oh, by the way, Ray, this is the point where Lenin would intervene and laugh at us and right. say, how hypocritical this conversation is. Do countries not use death and destruction for political ends? Is, is war not the continuation of politics by other means, as Karl von Clausewitz said in On War? And so do you mean to suggest that countries never use violence and sacrifice human lives for larger ideological ends? And if you are willing to admit to that, does that uh, undermine everything you're saying? Uh, and, and so that's, that's how I think some of these tyrants would weigh in. Right. Uh, and, and I would push back against that very hard. And I would also repeat what I just said. We need to look inwards at what we do, whether it be us as individuals, our government, other governments, what we do, and how can our actions be rooted in the need to diminish suffering for others as much as possible. Uh, I, I think that is the defining point of all of this. Empathy, empathy, empathy. Right. I'm glad you brought up that last part because, and as you well know uh, better than I do, the second that a leader of any kind, of any, whatever level, starts seeing some of the people under them as not quite as worth much as they are, you know, maybe they're not quite human or, or just their, their culture or their, their people or whatever is somehow just subpar. That's when you get into problems, because if you don't see someone as your equal, then suddenly you free yourself up to treat them almost any way you want. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say to listeners, right, what we do and don't do matters for people. Mm -hmm. You're listening right now. You are alive. You are conscious. How people treat you, it matters. You have dignity. And I, we can only, you know, beg that policymakers, decision makers, that hard decisions are made, but how do we stand up for the human dignity of others with the understanding that they too are alive like us and uh, their stories matter? Uh, it, it, it does matter. Uh, very mm -hmm. quickly, you know, since this is you know, recognizing the World War II context that we're in with, with this show, right, mm -hmm. um, I'm reminded of a, a great general, Omar Bradley, you know, and thinking about his campaigns in, in Europe, right, mm -hmm. uh, reading his memoirs. You know, it's it's pretty tough when you think about what a general does on the battlefield. And uh, now we're making this conversation more complex. Now we're going deeper. You know, Bradley says that what a general really does is he looks at a map and he says, "We need to reach to, we need to reach point B. We're at point A, right? right? It's going to require this amount of sacrifice. We have to be willing to endure this number of losses, human and material. Um, and the idea is, how do we diminish those losses as much as possible? But People are going to have to fight and die. So the question is, what what wars are what wars must be fought? Like mm -hmm. defeating Nazi Germany, must that war had to be fought? No, that, that he had to be destroyed. Exactly. But what happens when leaders embark on wars that don't have to be fought for other ideological purposes that bring immense horror? That's the road to war crimes and crimes against humanity. Right. And you're right. We, we've recognized that enough to make those crimes, specific crimes with certain titles and things like that. So, yeah. Uh, and of course, um, kind of what's going on today is certainly bringing back certain phrases and words uh, of World War II era. But uh, so before we jump into the childhood of Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Mao, that kind of thing. Uh, and again, you make this point uh, and you drive it home in your conclusion at the end of your book, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, worth reading all by itself. But at the end of the day, you have to consider the historical, the personal events around these people's formative years, but also their individual psychologies. It's a very complex pattern. And, and I, I know the average listener gets that, but there are so many factors that can make a child or break a child, or maybe is it just their psychology that pushes them to extremism? I mean, we'll never know the answer, but there's just a lot that goes into, obviously, making up someone's psychology. Yeah. I think our task as students of history mm -hmm. is to examine the past with the conviction that it's explicable. There are some things we will never get to the bottom of um, that we will always continue to investigate. Right. You know, we think about something, the evil on the level of the Holocaust, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, but we also have to examine such horrendous things as um, explicable because we seek to prevent them from happening ever again. Exactly. I, 
And so what unfolds, though, and before evil, I look at the formative years of these tyrants. I, I look at the parallels in their lives. I tell the story of their crimes in the opening of the book. But I, I am up front and saying mm-hmm. is one of the caveats. There is no definitive formula for understanding how such tyrants come to be. History is not a math problem. It's not two plus two will equal four every time. And we take this basic equation and we apply it in a different scenario. And this person had this type of childhood. And this definitively shows that they're going to be tyrannical. There are parallels. Mm -hmm. There are commonalities. But that is not reality. Um, the, the larger takeaway that it emphasized at the end of the book, which I will emphasize over and over and over to listeners, mm-hmm. this is a story about what happens when ideas begin to transcend the meaning for the humanity of other men and women around us, when we lose sight of the necessity of love, compassion, and mercy alongside strength to combat tyranny. Uh, and so the story of these individuals' lives, the larger lesson, quote unquote, is the necessity of standing up for the humanity of all people. But, but that also suggests that we need to recognize the humanity of even the very worst among us. doesn't mean that we excuse their right. actions. They are guilty, absolutely. But we also need to consider the humanity of the worst of us. And, and that's a trying task. Absolutely. And you, and you mentioned uh, you started out with the Holocaust. And, of course, we should defend other people because at some point somebody might be coming after us. And if we don't defend others, who's going to defend us? So, um history just has a way of repeating itself. So speaking of the the pain and the pleasure of childhood, let's jump in with Hitler. So if someone says the name Hitler, you automatically think of the worst human being that ever existed. He's right there with the devil. In fact, some, and and you're not going to be surprised to hear this, but some of the, some of my episodes um, are not allowed in uh, to be played in Germany or downloaded because if it's got Hitler in the title, you know, they, they've literally said, no, we want nothing to do with this. And that makes sense. It's their choice. But the point is when it comes to evil, I think a lot of people automatically go to Hitler. But as you say in your book, and as you just said a couple of minutes ago, Hitler was once a boy. He was once an innocent little boy. He had ambitions, desires. He had a very loving mother. And yet, he turns his back on her. He turns his back on everything she was trying to give him. And I think to fulfill some kind of fantasy of absolute power, maybe of renewing Germany, which he loved very much. But I think the other part of that is the way his father treated him. I think he wanted to be in a position where no one could ever hurt him again. Mm. Yeah. Um, You know, the psychology of what goes on between Hitler's dad and and him as as a kid. And by the way, I call him Adolf in the book. Right. Um, Why? Because it's a rejection of his cult of personality. I'm not I don't want to call him the Fuhrer. That's what he would have liked. I'm going to call him Adolf, which is to suggest that he is also a human being, which is what he didn't want to be considered. He wanted to be considered larger than life. Right. (laughs) Super. He didn't want to intentionally. He tried to act as if he wasn't an ordinary person. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why he would say, I'm never going to get married because I must be married to the to the the greater notion of Germany. Right. And and I can't have a private life. But he did have a private life and he was ordinary in many respects. So Adolf is probably what he least wanted have wanted to have been called. So therefore, I call him Adolf. Right. It's a rejection of his cult of personality and the evil that defined it. Mm-hmm. But it's also a reminder that evil alone did not define him. Um, e- evil does define his life through and through, but evil alone does not define him. Right. Uh, meaning that there's more to him as, as a person. So this is someone who grows up playing cops and robbers, you know, war games, mm-hmm. cowboys and Indians, quote unquote, um, idyllic summers in the country village where his father was raised. Um, he takes singing lessons growing up. He's a choir boy for wow. a, a while. Uh, apparently he had a good voice. Right. Uh, for a while, he, he talks about, and we're talking now about, you know, a, a, a child, seven or eight years old, sure. talks about becoming a priest. His, his mother, you know, his family will say that he practiced, quote, long and fervent sermons. Uh, um, one biographer notes that his interest in things priestly ended as quickly as it began before long he was caught, caught smoking. Right. Uh, becomes a confirmed Catholic at 15, although was never really religious. Uh, as a teenager interested in Catholicism. Okay, so what's the point here about his family? A, he has a terrible father who is um, Aloysius abusive towards him. That does have a profound impact on him. That's part of it. Uh, generally, the explanation popularly is that, well, surely the trauma at his father's hands caused who he would be, that it's a part, it's absolutely a part of the puzzle. I, I push back against that a little bit, though. Mm-hmm. And I push back and say that the most important uh, experience of his, lo- of his childhood was his mom. Um, his mom uh, 
dotes on him, loves him deeply. She had lost three young kids before him. This was someone who had suffered immensely in terms of the lost children. Uh, and he, his sister, Paula, will say, quote, how often did my mother caress him and try to obtain with her kindness where the father could not succeed with harshness? Uh, Hitler will say, you know, as an adult, quote, I respected my father, but I loved my mother. Right. Uh, she was... Uh, a kind individual. And really what she did for him growing up was give him space to kind of decide who he was going to be. Mm -hmm. He effectively drops out of high school. And his mom, rather than being this harsh disciplinarian like his father, allows him room to kind of paint and be a bohemian and lends right. Austria. He's drawing, he's painting, he's hanging out with his only friend, August Kubizek. And then even when he goes to Vienna, right, and begins the process mm -hmm. of who he will become, meaning he goes to Vienna and it's there that anti-Semitic influences really start to take hold. Um, he goes to pursue art school there and become an artist because uh, his mother's dying right. of cancer and she wants to see him find a path in life. And now, now it's interesting, right? Does he turn his back on everything she wanted for him? In one sense, yeah, absolutely. You know, she wanted him to have a happy life and to be a good person. And by the way, we can say that. That, right. That's sincere. His mother, I think we can say, wanted him to be a good person. His mother was not a bad person. She was loving and wanted the best for her kids. But when you know Adolf goes to Vienna and you know fails to get into art school twice um, and begins to dream about this larger mission, in his mind, I, I think we can make the safe assumption that he thought he was serving a larger purpose that his right. mother would be proud of. He'll keep his mother's photo with him always, meaning wherever he stays. His mother's photo is framed and in his room, and he'll bring her up at times. Um, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll sometimes reference in a kind of melodramatic way around Christmas. You know, and in like 1935, he refuses to even come out of his room on Christmas. Wow. His mother died just a couple days before Christmas, and he'll say, you know, my mother died under the Christmas tree. This was a person uh, whom he loved and deeply respected. And in his own mind, he probably squared the Messiah complex of, you know, the greatness, quote unquote, he was going to do for the world is something she would have been proud of. Wrap your mind around that. Yeah, because I imagine if he said, OK, mom, this is what I want to do. After about five minutes, she would have went, no, that's the exact opposite. I wanted you to have a good job, maybe a priest, maybe a civil servant, a good salary. You know, you can take your pension. You can take care of your family like you know, Adolf's father did, but, um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think he said, well, I want to be this. And I just know that my mother would go along with it. Probably not, but it made him feel better. And it probably encouraged him to, uh, to actually pursue a much bigger destiny. Yeah. And, and, and no, we're making assumptions, right? Uh, right. the, the inner workings of, of Adolf Hitler's mind, the, the depths of right. the depravity, right. And the twisted logic is a, a Byzantine maze, which maze, which will we'll never fully work our way through. We can't. Right. But what we do know is his mother's relationship, his mother's relationship with him is very, very important in his life. Right. When she dies of breast cancer, it, it absolutely crushes him. His mourning, his pain is real. And by the way, now might be an appropriate moment for a caveat because a listener might weigh in and say, who cares? Right. I'm glad he suffered kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Who cares that Adolf Hitler loved his mother? Right. Right. Before the specter of the Holocaust, the reason why we talk about the story of Hitler's formative years mm -hmm. is because we care so deeply about the suffering he will cause for so many, so many men and women. And we're trying to understand the explicability and explanation for how someone like that comes to be. Uh, and the parallel that we take away is this is a human being who will pursue a path not because he wants to be an evil mastermind, right. but because he believes it will be, quote unquote, great and will serve a larger purpose. What would Clara Hitler have said? And this is a counterfactual we can never know. Right. If someone could have sat down with her and said, do you understand the suffering and misery that your beloved boy is going to cause for this world? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that would be, yeah. Uh, I, I would like to be there for that one. And if I could add on to what you just said, uh, a lot of these men, you know, they want to improve things, but, and you really stress it with Mao, but it's true with all of them. Yeah, I'll, I'll do what's right and I'll help my country or government or whatever become stronger and better and greater, whatever. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm along for the ride as well. I don't want Germany to be great unless it's great with me at the <laughs> helm. Oh, it's, it's those things go hand in hand, don't they? Because, yes. you know, this is where someone um, might weigh in and say, oh, come on. Right. These are power-hungry tyrants. 
who pursue power for power's sake and then kill everyone who gets in the way. Uh, and, 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 and I think we have to frame that more carefully, which is that – uh, one, it is a matter of course when we look at the story of these dictators that power is the essential means through which they can uh, pursue these ideological ends. That the notion of Stalin, the man of steel, quote unquote, being at the center of all of this, well, in his mind, this is a matter of course. How else could it happen? Yeah. He will say in the last years of his life to people like Khrushchev, uh, you're all blind kittens. You're all going to be crushed by the capitalists without me. So there's this opportunism, the cynical opportunism, which goes hand in hand with ideological radicalism. Example, um, why is it that if Mao Zedong you know, wants power, which he does, he, he is power hungry, but if it's only about power and, and it's not about ideology, meaning the beliefs he has about the world, why is it he does such irrational things that undermine his power? Mm-hmm. Why, why would he implement the Great Leap Forward 45 million people starved to death, and it, this destabilizes his role as a leader. Uh, it actually, by 63, 64, mm-hmm. he's still in control, but he he is challenged that he is receiving pushback from Liu Xiaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, and so on. And even this, if we look at World War II, how is it that when Germany is facing an existential threat, meaning that the Soviet Union um, is invading and, and causing extraordinary suffering and a, a total war to the death that the Nazis are still prioritizing the mass murder of European yes. Jews. Yes. Uh, the ideology, the ideas which uh, we can see now are, are evil and irrational, mm-hmm. meaning irrational in the sense that what Mao does in China hurts his own position. What, what Hitler is doing in, in the Holocaust hurts Germany. Uh, alongside the number one point, which is the murder of innocent European Jews. Uh, But that's the power of ideas, and it goes hand-in-hand with power-hungry cynicism. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Power is the vehicle, uh, but they have their own destinations based on, you know, Hitler for the Jews, and Mussolini wanted to be great. And so, yeah, power is an end uh, unto itself, I guess, or a means, excuse me. Uh, Power is a means. But uh, So if we could uh, go on to Mussolini now... I don't know if this is fair or not, but in the past, I have called Mussolini the used car salesman of dictators. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to be loved. He wanted everybody to adore him, to stroke his ego. Maybe there were some massive insecurities there. I don't know. But he wasn't exactly great when it comes to details, when it comes to administration. But again, like Hitler, he had a loving mother. He had a hard father. And he you know, the mom's just doing the best she can trying to give her uh, her son a future. Mm-hmm. Well, when we look at the story of, of Mussolini, and he is a confounding contradiction. Yes. But, uh, I mean, every single part of him is a contradiction. Let, let's have an overview here of the opening <laughs> chapter on, uh, on Mussolini. Right. Uh, he was a shameless opportunist yes. who invented an ideology, mm-hmm. a warmonger who proclaimed peace. A philanderer who supposedly loved his wife, quote, you have been for me the only woman whom I ever really loved. He writes to her just before dying with his mistress. A a, a passionate bibliophile who ignores basic facts. Uh, A loving father who spends little time with his kids. A tyrant who sleeps well, even as his world disintegrates. Apparently he slept really well on that last night on earth with his mistress. Um, Death, he should have been dead over and over and over. He survives an ugly wound from friendly fire in the First World War. He fights violent sword duels, including one in 1921 when he nearly kills a newspaper editor. Um, He survives car and airplane crashes, numerous assassination attempts. He was both cautious and reckless, a man who, and I'm quoting another historian in this line, quote, combined the ferocity of the tyrant with the hesitations of a child, end quote. An individual who bragged that his skull was bulletproof it wasn't, Ray. No. Yeah, fear <laughs> injections at the doctor's office. His, uh, his daughter, Etta, will say that he would tense up so hard when getting a shot that sometimes the needle would break. Oh uh, a, a fascist who sought to create a totalitarian regime in Italy, a war criminal responsible for a million deaths, but also a tragic buffoon who became lost in a dream until its consequences shook him awake. In the words of Thucydides, war was a stern teacher after all. Mm. Well, 
you just finished Mussolini for me. I think we can all go home now. No, but uh, that was absolutely brilliant. I think it was dead on. But like Hitler, I mean, there was thoughts of him by his mother, maybe of being a priest. So here we are. He's a little boy. The mother wants the church for him. And eventually he's going to go in the exact opposite direction. But again, his mother strove mightily to prepare him for life. Yeah, well, his mom was a... um a lovely, lovely person. Rosa was an elementary school teacher, and she she would insist on him going to religious schools. Uh, I think she probably would have loved to have seen him be a teacher, which he almost – he does become a teacher. Right. He, he does work as an elementary school teacher. He's a disaster. He can't control <laughs> things. Which is again contradiction on contradiction on contradiction. Yeah, yeah. he he works uh, for a, you know a brief period as an elementary school teacher. It's so much scandal in that, and right. and he is. A, he is a terrible individual at times in terms, especially of his, his treatment of women as a young person. Uh, but as when his brief stint as a school teacher, he, he can't control kids, yeah, yeah. Um, which is very interesting. Oh, so let's think about his mother and his father. Um, yeah. He is different from Mao, Hitler, and Stalin in that Mussolini has good parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mussolini, so Stalin, Mao, Hitler have abusive fathers, and that certainly has an impact on them. Uh, Mussolini's dad is, you know, he, he's an ardent socialist. He doesn't really want to work. He just wants to give the families the money away to the socialist cause. Yes, he's a rabble rouser, but he doesn't He's not abusive at all. He's a, right. he's a loving father. And his most important impact, and, and same with his mother, is trying to uh, talk to a son in a way that will give him a, a larger worldview and a mission. You know, how are you going to make this world a better place? His dad is a socialist activist, wants him to fight poverty. And the biggest influences on Mussolini's early life, uh, it's Victor Hugo and Les wow. Miserables. Um, he as a little boy will sit in a cow shed. And so now listeners, we're getting away from the notion of kids on social media or lots of screen time. And we're talking about a moment, right? Where kids are turning to, uh, masterpieces of literature, Mm -hmm. um, like Les Mis and, you know, a book that is ultimately, uh, mourning the meaning of poverty for real people. The right. mourning the notion that people are going to fall off this ship in an ocean in a storm and that person's going to see the ship sail away, bobbing up and down, knowing that they're going to die. And the ship doesn't turn around. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Either right. the people don't care or they don't notice. So Mussolini hears these types of stories in Les Mis, that type of analogy. And, uh, and he has a father who's urging him and a mother, you know, what will you do to make this world a better place? Yes. Uh, the story of his tyranny, the story of his war crimes, the misery he will bring to Italy, Ethiopia, and Libya, begin not with someone wanting to cause great harm, but mm-hmm. someone with visions of greatness, that he will fight poverty. In some ways, it begins with Victor Hugo. Wow. Yeah, it, to tell someone who's mildly interested in World War II, you know, Mussolini actually wanted to make the world a better place. They'd be like get out of here, he's a power hunger, you know, the, the normal speech or whatever. But yeah, his father set him up, you know, you got to think of the larger world, look how unfair things are. And you're right, his father, I don't know if his father was just lazy or unorganized or, fo- or unfocused. There were times his father literally did give money away to the poor. I mean, that's, that's Jesus-like, that's amazing. But at the same time, Mussolini is going to take that message and he's going to do it in a more intense, direct way. He had to find his own way to do it. But uh, again, his unlike Hitler, his father was his hero, but he still found his way to end up signing off on some very cruel things. Oh, yeah. He becomes the he becomes a fascist, right? I mean, right. he he comes up with this notion. He invents fascism mm. um, and, as an ideology, and this is an individual who will cause such immense suffering. But so, what is the point here, right? If we're talking right. about the influence of Victor Hugo, well, well, here's a crucial point, right? It is the notion of we try to believe and we want to believe that we have nothing in common with these individuals. Uh, it is a reminder that even the best of influences, like Victor Hugo's Les Mis, about right. want, our need to fight poverty, that we can become susceptible to divisions of greatness. How are we going to make the world a better place where we start to believe our own myths and we start to do terrible things? Um, You know, Mm -hmm. a a word on fascism. You have Mussolini creating an ideology which ultimately can justify anything he ever wants to to do. Exactly. It's elastic. Yeah, right. He will say, and wrap your mind around this, says in October 1919, the fascist movement was not a party, but 
rather an anti-party. It wasn't Republican, Socialist, Democratic, Conservative, or Nationalist. It was something new, a combination of all of the above. Quote, fascism rejects all parties, yet completes them, meaning nothing and everything. Converts can make, it of, it, make of it what they want. And then when he takes power, th this is an individual who will want to be completely in control. And what's the point here? The intersection of delusion of greatness, the tyrant who's power hungry, with the notion that they can solve everything. Mm -hmm. here's, a few high, here's a few points from fascist Italy. And, and up front, I will say, you know, what... When we're talking about fascist Italy, you know, what's the most important thing we should say? Um, how, how about Mussolini's complicity in the Holocaust and the murder of thousands of Italian Jews? How about war crimes committed in Ethiopia that lead to immense death? How about Italian colonialism in Libya? I, I say that up front, all right? right? But here's some other elements of fascist rule. Um, Mussolini, or as I call him, Benito, will ban shaking hands because the fascist salute is more hygienic. He'll eliminate jazz from the radio. His youngest son, Romano, by the way, later becomes an acclaimed jazz musician. <laughs> Uh, which is weird, uh, and writes a really loving memoir of his dad that's totally it's an apologist wow. work. You know. um, he outlaws shorts for women. Um, he puts a tax on, quote, unjustified celibacy, criminalizes the distribution of contraceptives, outlaws, quote, obscene publications and swearing in public, demands unsuccessfully that children only play with Italian-made toys. One fascist writer writes in 1937, quote, toys must be at the service of the state. Um, on the bigger issues, Mussolini is a fascist dictator. Uh, he's what Hemingway said, summed up really well. He was the biggest bluff in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but Benito wastes no time in banning Hemingway from ever living in, <laughs> in Italy. Hemingway one time found him in the 20s reading a, I think it was a French English dictionary right. upside down. Oh so, my you know, God. Um, so um, what are we doing here? What are we talking about? We're talking about the humanity of, of a war criminal and yes. why? Because we care so deeply about the suffering they will cause. We need to engage the human stories of who they were. Well, if I could go back to the basic premise of your book, that, it, that there's uh, many factors that go into making up someone like this. Um, if I was raised my entire life with my parents saying, how are you going to make the world a better place or whatever? You know, they keep saying it over and over. And I get to my 20s. I hopefully I don't say, oh, well, my answer to that question is I just started the fascist party. Hopefully I could come up with something better than that. But but for Mussolini, it was it was twofold. It was an idea to make Italy great, but at yeah. the same time, he would be on top and he would enjoy the power and the fame. Yeah, I mean, the hallmark of fascism, a return to national greatness, um, the notion of that he will be the strong man, a rejection of democracy. But what we see in that is... Um, a crucial takeaway. We don't come away with an essential formula for how dictators definitively come to be. Like, is a parent listening to this going to be like, you, what, so you're telling me I shouldn't let my 14-year-old read Victor Hugo? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, the, the takeaway is yeah. we all want to be good people, right? And we want to treat people with decency and, and we want to contribute to a better world around us. When we come up with ideas and we begin to believe in convictions, and this isn't about any one political group. This is about right. me, you, all of us, right. and any set of political convictions. If we begin to believe that those convictions are more important than the humanity of other people, and we lose sight of the need to stand up for the dignity of all human beings and empathize with them, that's the road. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's, how, that's how it begins. Absolutely. No, I'm glad you said that. Now, just for comparison's sake, because I love... I'm conflicted by Mussolini. Who isn't? But I love him because of those conflictions. But on one hand, here's a guy who's got good parents. His mom's pushing for him. His dad's kind of his hero. His dad's a wild card, but his, his dad's a hero. And almost on the other end, in certain ways, you got someone like Stalin. Um, Stalin has a loving mother. He has a cruel father. But again, and this is going to sound like I'm repeating myself, he does get an education. His mother fought very hard for his education. But unlike Mussolini in some ways, Stalin has a very hard life uh, early on. And maybe that affected uh, the way he came out. But there are some similarities, but there's also some differences as well. Yeah, and I think the similarities are the notion of a good education, mm -hmm. a loving mother, creating opportunities in his life. The, the argument of before evil is that we need to focus on those advantages as being really important for who he would become. Right. Uh, all too often, we've only focused on his abusive father. And I think that is a way of, well, A, it, it's problematic, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of people have troubled childhoods or suffer abuse and go on to be loving, empathetic people, right? Yeah. 
we're not only a product of what happens to us as kids. It really matters. It is an important part of, of an individual's life stories, and we should be empathetic to that. But um, to say that it's childhood abuse that's creating these these monstrous individuals, that's that's too reductive. It's part of it. It certainly is. Mm-hmm. Here's an example in Stalin before we talk about his mother and education. Stalin's father is abusive. He struggles with substance abuse. And this is a father who would come home and beat his son severely. A son who, when his dad was approaching, would run to his mom and tell her to hide. Um, and and where do we see parallels with this? Um, you know, at the end of Stalin's life and his so-called, you know, the doctor conspiracy, he's convinced the doctors are trying to kill him right. um, and has them locked up in a dungeon. And uh, he, here's an order that Stalin gives, and, and this is evil. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes... Uh, to the interrogators uh, what to do with these doctors that he's accusing of a conspiracy to kill him. Stalin writes, beat, beat, and beat again. Put them in chains. Grind them into dust. All right, we're talking about real people yes. who are now going to experience something that is um, that is a hell on this earth that no individual should have to endure. And he, and he sends that order. We return to Stalin's childhood and, and we see a kid that was being beaten. Um, and I think that is part of the puzzle. He knew what it meant to be beaten. He knew that nobody, nobody can withstand endless beating. Everybody will have a breaking point. Right. Um, and by the way, his mom fought his dad physically at times. Yes. And so did Stalin. One time Stalin threw a knife at his dad as a kid. And he'll tell his daughter, Svetlana, this. And so it's a troubled childhood. His mom, and this is kind of something someone might push back, right? If, if these moms were really so loving, like Hitler's mom, you know, why didn't she leave? Right. right. Why didn't she leave? And there's a lot more to that story. I think that is um, there's there's a lot more to that. For someone like Hitler's mother, you look at the context. She's significantly younger. Um, it, it, I think there are a lot of variables to that discussion. Right. right. Uh, but that, that might be something someone would push back uh, and say, well, uh, looking at Stalin's case, the mom does leave. KK, mm-hmm. his mother does leave the dad, which is almost unheard of. Exactly. For, for someone like Hitler's mom to have left his dad would have been that would have taken uh, an, an extraordinary um, amount of courage in a deeply patriarchal country, um, yes. in which she had kids that would have to survive. And for Stalin's mother, she does it in patriarchal Georgia, in which, um, it is extremely difficult, um, to be a woman who's going to leave a man and live on her own. She does. She yes. abandons the husband. Her family t- begs her to get back with him. Please, that's please go do. back to him. Reunite exactly. your family. She says, no. Why? Because Beso Jukashvili, Stalin's dad, wanted him to be a cobbler. He said, my son, books and learning, it's going to ruin him. Right. He needs to learn to make shoes. Exactly. The father was, and before the father got into drinking too much, he actually, you know, he had a pretty good uh, business going on. It was enough. Uh, they didn't suffer. But then alcohol comes and that changes the equation completely. Yeah. As also often happens, substance abuse destroys lives. Um, it destroys lives. It destroyed Stalin's father. Um, and the biggest thing that KK contributes is fighting this father, literally, and um, and in terms of the home situation, right. that my kid's going to get an education. Right. And she, she um, insists on him getting into school. He does. And she finds a benefactor for the family. And her vision is my boy is going to go on to be a priest, maybe even a bishop someday. And it's through her backbreaking work that she gets this kid into school, gets him a mentor, um, get, gets him a benefactor who helps pay for tuition. And he ultimately gets into the seminary. Um, yes. to Blissey, which is now we're approaching something of the equivalent of a, a college education. And, and again, she's doing all this against her husband's wishes in an s- extremely patriarchal country. Um, and how, how, much, how, how much it must have stung mm-hmm. when her kid, this beloved son, begins to become radicalized in the seminary, right. begins to f- argue with the priest, declares himself an atheist, which is problematic when you're studying to become a priest. <laughs> Um, and starts to read, and here's the engine of tyranny. Uh, ideas are, you know, the, the road, hopefully, to a better world. But the power of ideas is it cuts both ways. He becomes enamored of of radical ideas. He becomes a radical Marxist, and he begins to believe, what should we not do for this larger world? And he's about to get expelled. His mother um, will write, you know, it's like a 30-page memoirs on young Stalin, and it's left really in an archive in 
former Soviet Socialist Republic of Georgia. Um, and these memoirs, which were collected in the 1930s, you know, will essentially say that she heard he was getting in trouble at the seminary, and she and she rushed to him. Mm-hmm. She said. Um, so-so, which is what I call Stalin in the book. I don't call him Man of Steel. So-so is his childhood. Mm -hmm. So-so, what are you doing? Uh, You're going to end up in prison. And uh, he, according to his mom, wipes away her tears and says, Mom, don't worry. I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm not a revolutionary. And she she begs him, um, let somebody else struggle against Nicholas, meaning Tsar Nicholas II. Let Let someone else who has brothers and sisters do this. You're my only son. He tells her, don't worry, I'm not going to get in trouble. And um, and she'll say that that was his first lie. Mm-hmm. And later on, when Stalin rises to power, um, she'll go to him. Uh, no, excuse me, she won't go to him. He'll, he'll return to her. She refuses to ever live in Moscow or wow. St. Petersburg. Right. She lives, um, you know, surrounded by fawning members of the regime, right? But she lives like on a cot in, a, in, in one room and, and is a really humble, down-to-earth person. Right. And whenever they last meet in the mid-1930s before she dies, um, she'll say to him, uh, who are you now? Mm-hmm. What, what is it you do? And he'll say, oh, mom, you know, you remember the czar? I'm, I'm like the czar. Um, and she'll, she'll say, uh, it would have been better if he'd become a priest. Oh. And, and uh, he'll enjoy that response. He thinks it's funny. He'll tell right. his daughter that. And he, he thought it was amazing that she, for all he'd accomplished, yeah. you know, rising from poverty, becoming the leader of this revolution in the Soviet Union, um, that she'll, she'll, not, she'll be unimpressed. Uh, how, how much it must have stung KK. Right. When at one moment Tbilisi as all this stuff was going down and Stalin was getting in trouble and he does end up in prison. <laughs> he yes, does end certainly. up in exile. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, she'll run into Beso, his uh, father. Right. right. Uh, and he'll be clenching his fist saying to her, you ruined him. Right. You ruined him. He would be, have been a great foreman by now. He would be, he'd be a great cobbler if it wasn't for books and school. So listeners wrap your mind around that. Yeah. Um, is the lesson here that kids shouldn't be encouraged to read and go to school? No, uh, but there is um, something about the power of ideas mm-hmm. that can lead us to see the world in a certain light, and they can radicalize us. And um, yes. I feel for how KK must have felt at that moment, all she did for that kid. Yeah, I mean, just just the, and of course you can't see it at the time. You have to use hindsight, but the path that people are on, you you know, take Stalin, for example, you wish you can go back. Oh, maybe if he hadn't been radicalized, if he hadn't been kicked out of the seminary school. I mean, who knows? You can't start unpulling the thread of the tapestry of someone's life. That's just the way things turned out. But there are obviously things to look for, like like you say in your book. Um, so we're going to leave Stalin right there for now. Um, the next person is Mao. Um, and borrowing from your book, I absolutely love, and I will never forget the phrase, brilliant bandit. That's the way I'll think of Mao from now on. But he had a pretty good young life. His father worked hard. His father made something of himself. They weren't struggling. And so life, at least early on for Mao, was, was pretty good. Yeah. And again, this goes against what... Uh, our inclinations about where we want to think tyranny comes from. Right. You know, we want to think that these were kids who all had terrible childhoods. And the abuse of father, that is part of this. I don't reject that at all. Right. I don't I don't dismiss the pain of that for young Mao or Stalin or Hitler, but that doesn't hold out across the board for all, all these six tyrants. Mm-hmm. And and more than that, we think, well, surely, was, you know, they all suffered grinding poverty. Um, you know, Stalin grew up in poverty, but he, his mother ensured he had opportunities which helped him rise above it. Mao Zedong came from a family of, quote unquote, rich peasants, as he would say it. In other words, listeners, his dad was a successful capitalist. There you go. His dad ran a successful farm. He did things like he realized, well, if we're going to sell rice, um, it would be better to take it, uh, have it traded in the cities, right? Because you're going to get more money for it. And more than that, why don't I go to other farms that are selling rice and I'll take, I'll buy their rice at the market price in the country where there's lots of rice, but then I'll take it to the cities and I'll mark it up. And his dad's very successful at that. And so Mao Zedong has a a father who is abusive towards him. He is stern. And and he'll say this later in life, you know. Mm -hmm. And he'll go from talking with the Japanese prime minister at the height of his power in old age, you know, talking about the the strength of a cocktail to kind of sighing and looking at the distance (laughs) and saying, my father was a stern man. Oh. Uh, Which is 
okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Awkward. but that's because the story of his dad and his life mattered. Here's the most important defining part of the story of his dad. Right. One of the most important defining parts. His dad paid for him to go to school. His dad insisted that he would get a good education because it could help on the farm. It could yeah. help on the legal system. And this is a kid who grew up uh, falling in love with books. He would hide late at night, um, covering his room with a sheet so his dad couldn't see him, see him reading with an oil lamp. Mm-hmm. Um, and his dad would get really mad because all he wanted to do was read uh, around the farm. And the dad was like, no, you need to do farm labor with yeah. me. Um, and he uses these teachings against his dad growing up. He learns Confucian teachings and, and he'll use them to criticize his father. <laughs> and with his mother, um, it's, it's his mother, though, uh, that also is really important in his life. His dad is most important not only because of the trauma he subjects his son to, which, which matters for his, his personality and his psychological uh, worldview, but his dad pays for him to get a good education. And he falls in love with books, starts to think about what he could do in this life. His mother is a, a, is, is a Buddhist, right? Is passionate about the notion of religion as a means of developing a, a distinctive ethical stance, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, that one could think about how they can improve the world through action. Um, and when his mother dies, uh, he he's crushed by it. He'll say at her funeral in 1919 when he's 26 years old that her, quote, and this is Mal talking at his mother's funeral. And, and by the way, I don't call him Mal. I call him Runja, which was his, uh, his childhood nickname. Okay. Uh, quote, her impartial love extended to all, far and near, related or unrelated. Um, he'll say that she left the world without fulfilling her wishes and completing what she wanted to do. That was her greatest mental anguish. She kept calling on us to do good. The radiance of her abundant virtues was so sincere that its effects will last forever. As for her unaccomplished wishes. We pledge to fulfill them. My heart is set and determined. Young Mao in his mid-twenties at his mother's death doesn't ask, how could I cause great suffering in the world? He says in oration at her funeral, what will we do to fulfill her wishes of making this world a better place? My heart is set and determined. Oh, I like that. And, and mixing that with, you just mentioned this a second ago, all of these guys are big readers. So here's Mal consuming books as fast as he possibly can, like we a lot of us do when we're kids. Um, and he runs across heroes in the ancient, uh, ancient China, the old times or whatever, who are putting things to right. Uh, and Mal, uh, again, you know, takes on, or he thinks they're heroes, he wants to be like them. However, he, he seems to be, and I could be wrong, but he seems to be at a young age, okay with cracking some heads as well. But again, his heart was in the right place. He was listening to his Buddhist mom. How can I make the world a better place? Yeah, and and these are the moments, again, where someone might push back and say, what are you talking about? Exactly. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a monstrous person. Um, evil, this lack of empathy, mm-hmm. again, arises, um, not just from the notion of serial killers who hurt people because they want to hurt people and they know it's wrong, but they're going to do it anyway. Those things are real, right? That is real. The story of these tyrants is something far more complicated. Their evil is not complicated. It, it's unbelievably horrible, and that's quite straightforward. Right. Uh, it is the notion that they have certain ideological visions, the ideas, the, the glasses they wear that make the world look a certain way, where they are the heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're trying to examine the explicability of that. Okay, Young Mao, he's reading classic Chinese novels like Wa- The Water Margin, Romances of the Three Kingdom, mm. uh, Journey to Romance of the Three Kingdoms, Ro- Journey to the West. The book Water Margin, you know, listeners, if, if you want to get begin to get to the bottom of Mao, that, that's a good place to start. Right. It's got a novel about Robin Hood-esque rebels who hold themselves up in a mountain fortress and are fighting what they view as a tyrannical power system, a tyrannical emperor that, who is not in touch with the needs of the people. Uh, one of the protagonists of Water Margin is someone named Song Jiang. Um, and, and this guerrilla fighter is not the outlaw that authorities consider him. He is, as Water Margin states, quote, someone who always assisted those in distress and raised those who had been crushed down by life. That Song Jiang was, quote, the welcome rain whose influence was like the falling of rain on parched soil. Fast forward to Mao and the Cultural Revolution at the height of his power. His regime will describe him as, quote, the very red sun that shines most brilliantly in our hearts. Um, during the guerrilla struggle, um, at the very beginning, when, and, and, and Mao should have almost certainly have been killed in the, in the Chinese Civil War, uh, but he at times, in the beginning of that struggle, when people will say, what can we do? He'll say, you know, imitate the heroes of Liang Chongbo, meaning the heroes of water margin. Right. He carries water margin with them on the long march. Wow. Um, the, this book matters for him. Right. Um, 
It is a part of his worldview. None of this is to dismiss that there are many structural factors that transcend any one person. Another critique, someone might say, mm-hmm. you know, you talking about these individuals as if they were the end-all be-all reason why all this happened, right? That there are larger factors, economic, right. social, cultural, all of that is absolutely part of the story. I am, though, emphasizing very strongly that mm-hmm. the story of their individual lives mattered immensely. That's indisputable. And so then what is the story of how they came to be who they would be? The one thing I'm starting to notice is that all these guys want something good for their country, for their nation, a resurgence of greatness, whatever. But I can't help but notice that they're also like, oh, and I want to go along for the ride as well. Or I want everybody to love me. So it's almost like they're pairing together the messages they were getting as kid, you know, national greatness, but also self, um, uh, self success or, or whatever. It's like they're, they're grafting them together. The country and myself become one. I want to be the leader and together we will reach for new heights. It's almost like they're trying to make up for their childhood or the pain that they had. And also listening to the messages of their childhood and putting them together. Or is that an oversimplification? Well, I, I would say that we can look concretely and specifically at the example of Mao mm-hmm. and see the intersection of you know this these delusions of heroism right. with larger ideological ends. And what's interesting, and this is the book's second major argument, in addition to the, the, the emphasizing the notion of emphasizing privileges and advantages mm-hmm. they had, right. not just trauma. <clears throat> They all begin to believe that they have something great to do, that there is this, there's something distinct about them, that they have a larger mission that they will achieve. Um, here's where that takes shape very concretely for Mao. Uh, he has a teacher named Yang Chongqi, who is a wonderful teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this teacher, and now we're talking at the first normal school in Hunan, it's a teacher's school. Um, and, and it's there that he has this great teacher, and he emphasizes that our goal should be um, to embrace the way, be the superior individual. The superior individual will embrace a goal and they will stay after it with steadfast determination. But what should define that goal? That goal should be defined by serving your people, by accomplishing some larger end that will make the world better around you. And then you're going to have to suffer. You're going to suffer immensely in that task. But the superior man, quote unquote, will have this unbreaking will, and he can, quote, suppress his evil desires, can withstand the oppression of the powerful, and succeed in casting great influence upon the world. The ideas that young Mao experiences in the classrooms of his youth is the notion that his role has to be indispensable in that. That the starting point of altruism, and I'm quoting now a line that Mao will write, the starting point of altruism is the self. Mm. Uh, it is what you will do for the world. And yes, you might say, oh, it seems quite uh, convenient that you'll be at the center of all this power. Then the response based on these teachings, and the teacher was a good person. Like I mean, The teacher doesn't see what's going to come, right? right? The teachers are trying to build up kids to do something important in the world, which is that um, what, how will change happen? Only through the conviction of people who are willing to do what is necessary. And if you are not willing to say that you will be at the forefront of that, then are you really committed to those ideas? Absolutely. And, and before anybody wants to harp on uh, Mao too much for that, think of all the people in America that run for Congress, run for Senate, run for the White House. Yeah, they say they want to do good, but you've got to think in the back of their heads, they're probably thinking, this is going to be pretty good for me. So it's not like Mao's idea is that alien to us. Well, those ideas intersect, right? And I think the reality of, of every human being psychologically is not going to be the same, right? There, there are parallels that we all have in common, but everybody's unique in, in certain respects. I think to make a, if I am to generalize, it is that, you know, we are the star in our own place, right? right? And right. we tend to, you know, things that serve us individually in terms of larger power also go hand in hand with the stories we tell ourselves about what we are going to do that is right. And sometimes those things intersect in a powerful way in which individuals um, like someone like Abraham Lincoln, can you think about the audacity 
of taking center stage at the beginning of the American Civil War. The audacity of saying, I'm going to free millions of people from human slavery, and I'm going to fight a war to the death with the Confederacy because human slavery is wrong. What do I say by audacity? I mean that this was something profoundly right, but it would require struggle. It would require immense sacrifice. It would require ultimately burning the South to the ground for the sake of strangling the South to death. And And it was the right thing for the Union to do for the sake of ending human slavery, one of the greatest evils this world has ever known. So, okay, now we go, and this is a point someone might be like, how did you go from Mao to Lincoln? <laughs> Here's the point I'm making. Right. These commonalities of the, the audacity for an individual to say, I will take power and I will do this and it will be a struggle and it will be hard mm-hmm. uh, and people are going to suffer, uh, but we will achieve this larger end. This is not only the story of those we consider heroes, it's the story of those we consider the very worst. And the question for, for me, for you, for listeners, mm-hmm. is as we seek to undertake those tasks, right, if you have the audacity to stand up and struggle for what is right, at what point can you become the villain without realizing it? You cross the line, you don't even know. Yeah. I mean, George Kennan, um, you know, the, George, George, uh, you know, George Kennan, the author of The Long Telegram at the mm-hmm. beginning of the war, will write uh, in that document, I paraphrase, that the greatest danger we face in seeking to combat the Soviet Union um, is that in the process we become more like it. Right. So the question is, as we seek to do what is right, what happens when the need to privilege the humanity of all people falls by the wayside? Which then raises some uncomfortable questions for this book, which is, if we are going to stand for the humanity of all people or recognize the humanity of all people, do we also have the obligation to consider the humanity of the heinous? It doesn't diminish their guilt. It doesn't excuse anything they did. But now we're starting to tell the story of human beings. And as the name of the introduction's title is, uh, this is about us. Oh, well said. I like that. I'm just going to add on the the, uh, very last thing you wrote in your book, because, again, first of all, it's important to remember that, like you said, uh, these people don't see themselves as evil. They see themselves as the hero in their own narrative. They're trying to do good. It's just their 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 measure, their methods that that we have problem with. But at the same time, we need to remember that these people are, are human as well. And there is a path to where how they got where they're at. But the other part of your message is this. Um, you write, courageous opposition is needed to confront tyranny over the ages, but so too is love and mercy. The onus is on us. So again, we need to recognize humans for what they are and not completely write them off as they have so many other people. Yeah, I don't think that's the height of complicity. I I think it's the antithesis of their tyranny. Right. Um, And uh, the book, the first third opens up with the description of their crimes Mm. uh, because there can be no, that has to be front and center over and over and over. So Mao Zedong and the Great Leap Forward, 45 million people starved to death. Right. We are talking about misery and suffering that um, we can't begin to imagine what, what that was like for a great people for the Chinese people, right? Um, a, a people who had survived a century of humiliation. And then we talk about the Cultural Revolution where, oh, oh my goodness, I mean, the the, the scale of misery yeah. and the, the level of terror in the streets as red guards attack teachers physically and, 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 and murder heads of school and so on. Uh, but as we learn those stories, we all too often tend to think, well, that's how, how could... You know, that group of people do those things, and you know, this is alien to us. We could never do those things. Those things could never happen. Right. You know, in this country, yes, they could. Yeah. Yes, yes, they could. Yeah, this this is a human. Yeah. This is a human issue, and over and over they have. Yes. You know, this is one thing that people will write in the aftermath of the Holocaust. The so-called most civilized country in the world, right? We're, right. we're talking about, you know, think think about the notion of, of German culture and philosophy um, and art. Um, mm-hmm. They, meaning the Nazi party, a German regime, carried out one of the greatest acts of evil in human history. So uh, another message of the book is be very careful about seeking to view this as, you know, there's this other that does this. And this this could never happen here. That is not the story of crimes against humanity. And if you say things like it can never happen here, you're automatically lowering your guard. So don't yeah. do not do that. And so, that doesn't yeah. mean that we should engage in hyperbole, right? That doesn't mean that we should um, right. uh, 
I, I think that we have to look at things in a nuanced, and careful manner. But what should always be at the forefront, what we should be utterly steadfast about is, yeah, we're going to seek to struggle against tyranny, right? We have the obligation to stand up against tyranny. But as you do so, the, keep in mind, the most important element of fighting against tyranny is is being loving. Exactly. It's it the exact opposite. Exactly. And when we begin to hurt other people, believing we're fighting tyranny, and, and as we do that, we lose sight of the misery and the pain that we're causing, well, now you're becoming the villain. Exactly. Just just like you wrote it, uh, like you read in that letter a second ago. You know, the more you fight something, the more you become like it, and then suddenly you can't tell the difference between yourself and them, and that's the problem. Oh, and this is a good example of this is Kim Il Sung, the founder of North Korea. Right. This is someone who grows up in a country ravaged by Japanese colonialism, which we should mourn. The Korean people suffer immensely. That is real. He becomes a, an insurgent fighter in Manchuria, and Kim Il-sung is a young person had every reason to believe he was going to get killed. Right, absolutely. <laughs> there was, you're fighting the Japanese army in Manchuria and their allies. Um, you're not going to last long, and it's going to be bad. Yeah. And it's going to be painful. And so he showed great courage as an insurgent. But as the insurgency went on in Manchuria – they became more desperate, and they, they couldn't understand that some villages wouldn't support them. And, and now the road to tyranny begins. The, as his insurgent group, they begin to kidnap. Um, they begin to kidnap villagers that, that wouldn't help them. They begin to ransom villagers and essentially tell villages, uh, if you love your goods more than your men, well, you, we'll, we'll return them to you. We'll return their heads to you. Um, and it's almost this moment where, in their mind, if – we're going to die. If we don't begin to take these more extreme means, we're not going to survive this struggle. And yet they become the monsters, so to speak. And yet monsters aren't real. I repeat, only human beings are real. Now you are the monstrous individual. And now you're the one torturing a villager so you can ransom money and goods from this village to carry on the struggle. Um, you know, reaching for a demon's hand, like a, a drowning man with no other options. And that's how I'm sure they, 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 they viewed it. But that is the story of Kim Il-sung. And he becomes the dictator of North Korea. He'll say in rare moments of humility, I, I never dreamed I would become the leader. And then we begin to believe our own truths. It had to be done. Right. It could only have been that way. And now what else could only be a certain way? What else must we do? Oh, I'm sorry. You don't think so? You have critical questions? Well, if you are not on board, it's very clear that you are not only complicit with the evil we are fighting, you are guilty of it, and we will treat you as an enemy. There will be no dissent. Uh, so the antidote, my, what I mean by love and mercy, mm -hmm. you know, we listen. Yes. We, we take seriously the human suffering of others. Uh, and with that must come a degree of humility, a degree of humility uh, that goes alongside strength. Absolutely. Well said, Professor Gaucher. I want to thank you for your time. This book was incredible. And uh, yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk about Kim, so I'm glad you threw them in there. But uh, everybody check out this book. It really does open your eyes as far as not just viewing things as black and white, because life is not that way. Professor, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, Ray, it's totally my pleasure. Uh, listeners, uh, you can go to beforeevil.com and learn more about the book. It's available oh, yep. on Amazon and other platforms. And uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss it with you. No, absolutely. And I apologize because I know you got to go soon. But it's Before Evil, Young, Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao, and Kim. Again, thank you, Professor. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.